0: Welcome to the Epicenter podcast from the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. I'm your host, Erin Goodman, Director of the Weatherhead Scholars Program. Today, our subject is Lebanon. To understand Lebanon is to untangle a knot of geopolitical and sectarian interests that span a century. Once a progressive bulwark in the Middle East and a strong Western ally, Lebanon today is in freefall. Its economy has crashed in the wake of what's been called a massive state-sponsored Ponzi scheme. It's been called a failed state because it's lost its capacity to provide basic services to its citizens. And now the country suffers from a 78% poverty level. Clientelism seems to prevail, with sectarian organizations often giving their members preferential access to basic services like healthcare and food. Once labeled the Paris of the Middle East, today the city of Beirut is in crisis. In the summer of 2020, a massive explosion at the port decimated homes and lives. Protesters have faced serious violence. While all of this plays out, the U.S. has provided humanitarian aid along with Iran, Saudi Arabia, France, and the UK, yet it's still short of what's needed. But there's also a growing sense among the Lebanese that enough is enough, and they want reform. Today, we'll be talking to four scholars who know Lebanon well, its conflictual history, its government and financial system, and the spirit of its people. Melanie Kamet is director of the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, as well as the Clarence Dillon Professor of International Affairs at the Department of Government at Harvard, and a professor in the Department of Global Health and Population at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. A recent fellow in the Weatherhead Scholars Program, Carmen Geha is Associate Professor of Public Administration in the Department of Political Studies and Public Administration at the American University of Beirut. Also a fellow in the Weatherhead Scholars Program, Nate George is the Raphael Morrison-Dorman Memorial Postdoctoral Fellow, and previously was a postdoctoral fellow at Columbia University's Center for Palestine Studies. Lana Salman is a postdoctoral research fellow with the Middle East Initiative at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. Before pursuing her doctoral studies at the University of California, Berkeley, Dr. Salman served as a consultant to the Chief Technical Advisor of the Lebanese Prime Minister, and was an urban specialist at the World Bank. Lana, let's start with you. Can you describe what everyday life is like today in Lebanon?
1: Um, well, life is very difficult, by which I mean specifically in terms of providing the basic services and the, the basic things that can that make life function, um, fuel for heating, gas to start up your car and go to work, medicine, if you're sick, food to eat, really basic things. And what's happening right now, I think is, and was much more serious and severe, but still is is still uh, very severe is uh, the weaponization of time, by which I mean, there people have people queue for hours, for example, to fill their Gas to fill to fill their cars with gas to be able to move. Uh, people have to spend an entire day calling up different pharmacies and checking at different pharmacies to uh, to be able to access medicine for uh, to treat their illnesses. And uh, people have to also um, queue or call many providers to for fuel for heating, for example, and. There are two things that come up from this uh, weaponization of time. Uh, And by weaponization, I mean that time here becomes a means of slow violence. This is um, a concept that uh, a scholar, Rob Nixon, came up with. And slow violence is a very protracted, distributed form of violence over time and space that is not considered violence at all, but that its repetition and, and its perseverance over time really demobilizes against the explosive forms of violence and the spectacular forms of violence we know. But you can imagine that if you are queuing for seven hours twice a week for to fill up your gas to fill up your car with gas, you do not actually have energy or time to mobilize, to contest, to protest. Um, if you are worried about Where you're going to get the medicine for your chronic illnesses next, you're not going to be able to even have the bandwidth to think how you can fight the system because you're constantly busy uh, attending to these very immediate needs and it doesn't end, right? Once you provide the medicine for this month, you have to start thinking about providing it for the next month. Once you have to, once you fill your, your, um, car with, with gas this week, then you have to think about it for the next few days also. This also happened, the same thing also happens in banks by uh, preventing small depositors from withdrawing their dollars in banks and going to the bank to withdraw money in dollars. So there were uh, particular amounts uh, set that people were able to withdraw per month and you had to go uh, again, line up for hours at the bank to actually withdraw your money. So if you account for all the time people spend waiting to get things, queuing to get things, um, you can imagine how it's, it becomes then impossible to actually think of changing the system.
0: Carmen, Lebanon is no stranger to dissent, but the protests that started two and a half years ago were unprecedented in recent times. Could you say more about that?
2: But what happened in October 2019, I think nobody had predicted, including me. I had spent years arguing why Lebanon's power sharing system is so evasive to the Arab uprisings and all. So what we saw really from the north to the south of Lebanon was quite unprecedented for even for those of us that live there and and work there. It was really uh, something amazing. It was uh, largely peaceful. It was led by regular folks in their neighborhoods that came out to say enough and enough is enough. The October revolution demands for accountability, the end of corruption, justice and equality under the law of course bothered the warlords that had invested um, everything they had to keep the system. Um, This was October by early January, the the banking system had collapsed and to give a bit of a flavor as Lana was saying, you have to queue in line to get out your money. That is if you're not among what was at the time, 50% poverty rate now 78%. Um, So the banking collapse happened and we started moving from the streets to queuing for money. It's not that we only lost our money, but our parents' pension. I mean, essentially everything that you had in Lebanese bank now has turned to lira and the lira is worth nothing. Followed by the pandemic and the shutdown early March, and then the explosion in August that left 200 people or so. We say or so because some people were never found dead, 6,000 wounded and 300,000 households that were affected combined with a total loss of purchasing power. So the time that an average person, I'm lucky I work at a private university. We were able to shut down the campus, follow the students to the streets. We said that the street has become the, the, the classroom From my point of privilege, I I don't have time anymore to protest. After the explosion, there was a massive move from street politics, I think, into three streams of activism. The first is this widespread advocacy, alternate unions, freedom of expression, investigation into the port. The second is this range of humanitarian institutions um, that focused on building homes, providing food, shelter, clinics and schools. And the third stream is what we're seeing come together who have chosen electoral politics as the way to face this dissent. So there's still a lot of these protesters and a lot of the people that we know and that we met on the streets are either doing advocacy, volunteering in their free time or trying to build coalitions for election. In my opinion, the electoral path will take time and space, which Lebanon cannot afford. And what I mean by time and space is really the freedom to have a narrative that is all-encompassing, that is also contesting the Lebanese system. And that's very difficult to do in a country whose outspoken critics were systematically assassinated. Yesterday we commemorated Jubran Twain, and Slim was only a few months ago. All of these killers ha- have one thing in common. They killed people who stood against repression, who asked for sovereignty for Lebanon. And I think in the absence of time and space, For real electoral politics, it's going to be difficult to make a breakthrough this time.
0: Let's talk about how power sharing works in Lebanon. Melanie, can you explain the structure of governance and the political economy?
3: Sure. Yeah. Um, As uh, people may know, Lebanon is structured uh, as a power sharing system in which representation by different uh, political groups aligned with different confessional or sectarian communities have... Uh, inbuilt representation in the system. So the president is a Maronite Christian, the uh, uh, prime minister is a Sunni uh, Muslim, and the speaker of the parliament is a is a Shia, and uh, and this um, division. Uh, across Muslim Christian uh, figures into the civil service and uh, the bureaucracy and so forth and the parliament and it's structured into the electoral system so that at each district there is a pre-allocated uh, set of seats by sect, depending on the composition of the residents of that district. And interestingly, just as a footnote, um, women vote in the district of their fathers or their spouses. Um, And so you do have to some degree a mismatch as well between, uh, in addition to that, a mismatch between where people live and where they vote in some parts of the country. So uh, where your family originates from is often where you vote even if you no longer live there. So this affects some regions of the country more than others. But the important point here that's relevant to the crisis at hand is that there is this uh, representation pre-allocated that um, gives different, uh, largely sectarian parties and politicians and movements uh, representation in the system. And there are dominant politicians and parties that have controlled the levers of power for a very long time. Some of them were warlords uh, perpetrating acts of violence during the Civil War, and now they hold uh, elected and non-elected positions in government. And they have a very strong lock on power. Uh, and their power is not just political, extends into the economy. So there's been a, a fair amount of research um, over time, and particularly recently, tracing these networks of uh, influence that span the political sector and the economic sphere, uh, and so if you look at who controls the banking system and other key uh, elements of the economy, you can often trace this back to key politicians. What does that mean? It means they have a vested interest in the status quo; they're resistant to change, uh, and so this system um, that has been predicated on a kind of Ponzi scheme, as we've as uh, Aaron has referenced, and. Has has been described repeatedly, is very much in the interests of the politicians that have been holding office for a very long time.
0: Lana, do you have a sense of what happened in the aftermath of recent protests related to the explosion? There must be a tension between demand for reform and dependency on the services provided by these sectarian groups, which are connected to corrupt politicians.
1: I wasn't there for all the protests, but I was there for some. And following up on the protests from afar, there's extreme police repression, imprisonment of activists, uh, violence against them. And there's a counter-mobilization to actually get, uh, get the activists out of jail when they are jailed, demonstrations in front of the internal security forces, like their headquarters. So... There's, there's both. There's, I think, extreme violent repression and also this, this discourse. And on the other hand, the third thing, as I think, um, maintaining, maintaining the status quo by again, like my colleagues mentioned, by distributing, by again. Um, mobilizing this, the, the, these networks, these established networks of service provision to continue providing people with uh, food or to or preferential access. Like, I don't know, when Hariri in Beirut gives um, owners of generators fuel to turn on their generators and provide electricity.
0: You're referring to former Prime Minister Saad Hariri, giving preference to the Sunnis. Is this still happening?
1: These things are still going on, but I think the attitude about them is different now. It's like they took these people took everything. Politician or the system robbed people out of their life chances, basically. So what is what are these crumbs? Basically, people people I think are more aware that that these are, although they can they can depend on them. I mean, these are not mutually exclusive. You can depend on this, but also consider it as crumbs that you deserve better um, than actually Hariri distributing you know fuel to generator generator owners and the 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 question with lebanon is not just uh, the sectarianism the share the power sharing structure the fact that these people are materially invested in the status quo but i think also this overlap the neoliberal sectarianism right the overlap between an economic system that is all private that's so that that is that functions only based on emptying the state out of its institutions right so there is a Lebanese uh, emptying the state out of its capacity for distribution for welfare and web and redirecting that through party systems through sectarian systems and reaping benefits out of the system it it functions because someone somewhere is deriving profit out of this and continues doing so and that and on the other hand someone needs needs these these services there is demand for them
0: nate i want to turn to you for help putting this recent financial crisis into historic perspective can you take us through the basis for the collapse of the financial system
4: and it's usually dated back to the late 90s, the origins of this crisis, specifically the 1997 decision to fix the exchange rate of the Lebanese lira to the dollar, which was really a, a bold financial move by the, uh, the Prime Minister, then Prime Minister Rafik Hariri's choice for the head of the central bank, Riyad Salemi. This man's still in power today. And at that time, Lebanon had been devastated by a long international civil war, which especially lasted between 1975 and 90, but really had crises, many crises that preceded it and continued afterwards. Um, so the idea was to establish a uh, confidence in the Lebanese system to get people to invest in it. So fixing the exchange rate to the dollar was one way of establishing economic confidence. But really, this, the depth and breadth of the problem is much deeper than that. It really goes back to the origins of the very existence of the Lebanese state, which is now just a century old. And I think it's really important to look at this question in a longer view. So from the inception of Lebanon until the present day, the ruling political economic class has really prioritized the banking and service sector as a cornerstone of the national economy over the productive sectors, whether agricultural or industrial. Lebanon produces virtually nothing of its own and imports virtually everything in terms of consumer goods from, the, uh, from toothpaste to cars to uh, gasoline, everything. This system was established in the, the colonial era of the mandates, but it was actually um, continued throughout the era, era of independence, especially because at the time of the French withdrawal and political independence in 1946, Lebanon had experienced a boom in servicing the Allied armies in the Middle East of World War II. So the idea of Lebanon as a as a, international place of exchange where money would come in and be distributed. Lebanon would be an intermediary between Europe and the Arab other Arab states, which had much less developed financial systems. It appeared to be a good idea for, uh, especially for the owners of of capital and the banking system and the political class, which is kind of all the same, very tightly uh, interlinked personal linkage between bankers and politicians and importers and merchants, I should say. So actually, after independence in the 1950s, the power of the financial and mercantile elite was strengthened even further, especially by the adoption of banking secrecy law, which really entrenched the system of, of financial independence from any state oversight or any regulation at all. Uh, So the idea of a regulated banking sector or even a minimum level of planned economic development in Lebanon has been completely alien to uh, the government policy for 100 years. And this is what really needs to change.
0: Nate, I want to stay with you for this next question. What role does Lebanon play in the geopolitics of the Middle East? We know that Palestinians flooded into Lebanon after the war with Israel. And in Lebanon, they formed the resistance movement, the PLO. How did this set the stage for where we are now?
4: After 1982, Israel invaded and ejected the the PLO from Lebanon, but Lebanon remained occupied, especially the south. And this is where the rise of Hezbollah comes in, which became the leaders of the armed Islamic resistance, whereas previously it had been a more secular nationalist resistance movement. The Hezbollah... um, led it in a different direction ideologically. Now, the reason why Lebanon is geopolitically important, especially for the United States and its allied political camp, is seeking to deny and delimit uh, the regional growth and power of Hezbollah.
0: So it's a standoff between those who want to limit and those who want to support Hezbollah?
4: In Lebanon today, the struggle geopolitically remains over who will control the state. What, how will the state interact with regionally with its neighbors and internationally? Will it be allied with the Western former colonial, former and current colonial powers and their policies in the region? Or will it be aligned with the adversaries of US policy in the region, namely Iran and Syria?
0: Carmen, who's going to help Lebanon? We read about Hezbollah getting gasoline from Iran to help the fuel shortage. What about help from outside?
2: I think that it's important to understand that the root of corruption is impunity and amnesty for war crimes in Lebanon. Corruption essentially is favoritism. And this is a system whose foreign allies, Saudi, Iran, the U.S., French, has favored the rule of warlords. And that is an oxymoron to good governance. It is impossible to govern when you think your currency is killing and blood. Uh, And so any investment in Lebanese government or governance, of course, uh, will go to waste with a growing fleet uh, that is Hezbollah, that is super well armed, that has its welfare institutions. It's impossible to fight this fight from Lebanon alone. And it's impossible for one power to solve it alone. There has to be a geopolitical settlement that is about good governance in this country. And any bailout, I do agree that any bailout should put accountability at the heart of it. Otherwise, we're just inducting money into a system that will eat them up. It wasn't so long ago Timur Azhari and Reuters covered that Lebanese banks ate up $250 million that were uh, earmarked for refugees by UN agencies. Now, no country in the world and no taxpayer will accept this. But I think putting the blame on on people, on local politics is only part of the problem. I mean, yes, they're warlords. They, they, They put inept people in power. It took Lebanon like 10 years to enact an access to information law. Rape was legal until three years ago. I mean, this is a terrible system. But what makes it terrible is that Lebanon is not even on a negotiation table to free it from a fleet of weapons basically roaming around, assassinating people, threatening communities, and being today the only power broker in the country. I think this is one of the largest impediment to good governance. Ineptness and incompetence can be fought, and petty corruption can be fought, but impunity for war crimes, the Hariri tribunal, the series of assassinations, the port explosion, for that to go unaccounted for, I think has killed hope in me and any of us that neither Biden nor Superman can solve this because these people are going to continue today. Lebanon is a narcotic trading, human trafficking, drug exporter, terrorist harboring country, and again, these are structural problems. Sectarianism is not—you know—people don't wake up and carry arms. There is an investment in the standoff that Nate is referring to that doesn't seem to be to be yielding and whatever deal is being made nor anti-corruption measures are on the table nor human rights nor dignity not even the banking sector so I think that we um, anybody that wants to help Biden or others um, need to look at the root cause and essentially this is a group of warlords that were granted amnesty for w- war crimes and went and sat in their palaces and were rewarded by becoming ministers and president and now their sons-in-law and their daughters. I mean, the entire state is, uh, is like a family tree of people that appear to be polarized, but like we said in the beginning, they're extremely uh, invested in maintaining the system. They don't know otherwise.
0: Nate, Lebanon was once a strong U.S. ally, Why do you think that the Biden administration seems to be avoiding the issues in Lebanon?
4: So why has the Biden administration stayed away? To be quite honest, to go in the historical story that I've been telling here, Lebanon has turned out to be kind of a bad investment for the United States from their perspective, from the geopolitical perspective of of U.S. foreign policy. It has invested hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of Lebanese independence in creating a Lebanese state that and military, especially in the military, because the military is the favored conduit of US aid to Lebanon because it's seen as the most important entity for, for US policy because it's seen as an internal policing force, basically, that will keep order within the, the boundaries of the Lebanese state.
0: You also mentioned Syria before.
4: A lot of hopes were pinned on weakening Hezbollah through weakening the Syrian regime, which it's allied to, has ended sort of in a victory, more or less, for the government, which has really empowered the coalition in Lebanon, the Hezbollah-aligned coalition and pro-Syrian coalition in Lebanon to be more powerful there too. So that's essentially what the Biden administration and the Gulf states are seeing. They have continuously funded and subsidized political movements that were um, pro-Western or uh, anti-resistance, and they've always ended up losing.
3: Melanie, did you want to add more? Um, Yeah, maybe I'll just make one comment, and then I would love to hear from Lana and Carmen their thoughts about um, that, which they've started to articulate about alternative movements and organizations. so the one thing I would say is, you know, I uh, Nate was articulating the sort of macro political division within the country around the sort of Iran-Syria access versus um, more Western oriented actors. And I think that is an important divide, even though things have become more complicated in recent years. And, um, and that I think really shapes American foreign policy towards Lebanon because um, Lebanon is not does not have a state that is controlled by a single actor. And to the extent that it does have a dominant actor, it's more in the camp of the sort of Iran-Syria axis at the moment. So this is a delicate dance for the United States. And so I think it just makes sense on some level, uh, or at least one might understand why they would adopt a more hands-off approach. And, um, you know, because it's complicated, you're not negotiating with a single actor and the actor that the United States would prefer to negotiate with or the set of actors is not the one that holds the reins of power exclusively or even in a dominant way. Uh, The other thing is they're trying to re- uh, uh, in state some version of the Iran nuclear deal. So I think the priority is more there. Uh, and there's some ad hoc uh, efforts, I believe, to funnel humanitarian aid to the country, but not a, an overarching strategy vis-a-vis Lebanon. Again, I think it's because of this uh, political divide that makes it tricky for the United States.
0: Carmen, how are people surviving and resisting at the same time? Can you describe some of the alternative movements that Melanie referred to?
2: As I was listening to everyone, I was thinking a system so bad, for sure there must be some contestation to it. Uh, A system that is so structurally opposed to basic human rights, to basic human dignity, for sure there must be opposition to it of some sort. And one form of that opposition is a very widespread um, um, set of local institutions and actors that have chosen historically to challenge the system, um, not through protesting alone, which I can talk about a little bit later, but through really building local institutions that can defy widespread clientelism, sectarianism, and violence. And you have really a typology of these institutions from pre-legal advocacy to migrant workers who are kept at home in modern day slavery, essentially in captivity, Uh, From institutions uh, providing a blood bank for free for people and mobilizing youth to go and give blood, especially in times of disasters, all the way to schools and clinics and student clubs and women's associations and shelters all the way up to human rights organizations demanding an investigation into the Bay port explosion there is a widespread sense of defiance there is a willingness to stand against the system and i don't want this to be misunderstood as sort of only an ngoization of services this is something that we thought about a lot in in the, in the 2000s and after the 90s that these ngos can end up being um, um you know uh, having um unintended consequences of giving the state uh, a pardon uh, and leaving a gap to be filled by local associations. I don't think, however, in this crisis, looking at these institutions merely from the eye of NGOs um, is helpful. I look at them as widespread coalitions that are providing a different model of delivering services, a different model of advocating for human rights and dignity in a country that strips you away from everything. And I think that these institutions, given time, can produce a different way of providing health, education, um, basic services, shelter, and food where it's needed the most. Um, and whenever I get stuck, my moral compass always turns to Paul and Tracy Najar, who lost a three-year-old Alexandra in the explosion. Um, and their journey, I mean, not only in terms of advocating for a transparent in, in in the investigation into the port, they've continued to be a model for a community coming together. Just today, they posted about this is the second year that they're offering sort of a, um, a soup kitchen that you would call in the U.S., that they'll be cooking and giving away 12,000 meals to families on 23 and 24 of December. Now, the cynical in me You know, a year back or two years back would have thought this is not enough. People need to take to the streets. They need to call it as it is. But given the crisis and given how aloof Lebanese politicians have been, how arrogant, they didn't hold a single funeral service to the victims of the Beirut explosion. They wouldn't dare show their faces at a hospital for the 6,000 that were wounded. When I look at the model of of how politicians act and the model of how Tracy and Paul behave and others, I find that there's something there that to be looked at as a form of resistance to the system of saying, sure, maybe we can't change the whole country, but we're gonna take care as much as we can of this issue of this street. And I think that there is a lot of this happening in Lebanon that merits very close attention in the next phase and all kinds of support, not just financial, but merely mentioning these people and what they're doing and what they're succeeding to do in bringing communities together. I think it's very important. Lana, go ahead.
1: I just want to say that Again, uh, a lot of talk about doom and gloom, a lot of talk about eccentric things about Lebanon, but I want to say that Lebanon is not such an outlier case. It's a case where things are magnified a lot. It's a small country the fact that it's very small and stands in this like on this rift between these geopolitical forces um, makes things extremely complicated, but magnifies dynamics that are happening around the world, right? Uh, dispossessive ruling systems are everywhere. Um, uh, kind of the, the, the aggressiveness of neoliberal policies is everywhere. Solidarity campaigns, local, uh, local mutual aid, local organizing is also everywhere. And this is one of the narratives that we need to break down, the Leb- Lebanon is not an exception. Mm-hmm. We should see the play out of the forces in this country as a lesson for elsewhere, both in how systems get built and also destroyed and how people mobilize and also get demobilized. Um, and I think part and, and shifting this narrative to think of the Lebanese Lebanese society and the regime as uh, one where um, issues of rights, um, wealth, value creation, politics, difference, living with difference, living with otherness uh, should be like a lesson and not not an exception and an aberrant case, because that also means there's no resolution, right? Uh, Lebanon is an aberrant case, it's an extreme, it's an outlier, therefore we can't resolve this, we just let them be. But changing this narrative to think of these forces as magnified also opens opportunities
3: for changing our reality.
0: Melanie, did you want to say a final word?
3: I am very interested in these emerging uh, organizations and movements and citizen initiatives within and outside of the country. And I think it's absolutely... Uh, critical to points that Lana and Carmen have made about alternative spaces outside of the electoral arena. It doesn't mean these groups can't ever enter electoral politics. In fact, I think there's an interesting literature and political science um, that I've been thinking about recently on externally mobilized Political parties and the power of political parties that are rooted in civil society organizations. So it's possible, I can't, I don't have a crystal ball, but it's possible that these citizen initiatives or local initiatives ultimately translate up over time in powerful movements that can translate into political power.
0: I'm glad we can end on somewhat of a hopeful, though speculative note. I want to thank our scholars for giving us a very clear and sobering picture of Lebanon today. Melanie Kamet, Carmen Geha, Nate George, and Lana Salman. Thank you for sharing your time. You can read more about our scholars' work on the Epicentre website. Many thanks to our listeners. If you value our conversations, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button on your favorite listening platform. Until next time, I'm Erin Goodman signing off from the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University.